This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we discuss the book of Esther and the story that lies behind the celebration of Purim, which, as we record, was uh, very recent. So, yeah. By the time you listen to this, it'll be a little ways away, but yeah, it wasn't, uh, it was just a couple weeks ago of that. Yep. Yep. End of February, beginning of March. February 28th, March 1st. That was our celebration. I got to celebrate it at home with my family. Which is a little bit uh, less academic, but uh, maybe more mm, personal, meaningful, appropriate, appropriate, historically, how they would have done it, probably. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, that's uh, definitely better for my kids. And as my kids are getting older and older, I'm enjoying that more and more and more. They can engage the story as thinkers and hear us a little bit better. It's a lot of fun. So before I had come to your class, I'd never even heard of Purim. Yeah. So do you want to give some of the listeners who might not be familiar with the word yeah. or the you know celebration, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. It is, in a sense, a biblical festival. And by that, I would mean it's a festival based off of biblical story, biblical narrative. But on the other hand, it's not a biblical festival. It's not one of the Levitical festivals. When we read in the Torah, God ordains these celebrations in the law of Moshe from Sinai, and uh, that would include Passover, depending on who you're talking to or which book you're reading in Torah, First Fruits or possibly Unleavened Bread, Festival of Weeks would be your spring festivals, and then your fall festivals would have um, your Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, followed by um, uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and that's followed by Sukkot, which is the Festival of Tabernacles. And then in the spring, you get this additional, and obviously you have Hanukkah, by the way, right around the turn of the year. That's definitely a later addition to the Jewish calendar, uh, arising just after the Hellenistic period, the Greeks, right before the turn of the BCAD turn. Uh, and um, But then in the spring, you have this addition of Purim. Purim is the basically a celebration of the Book of Esther. Book of Esther tells a story, um, and... Uh, and and this um, rescue, I guess you could say, through a guy by the name of Mordecai uh, from the evil plot of Haman. And, um, and this rescue is then celebrated. And the whole thing is kind of interesting. Um, there's a, uh, first of all, the name Purim means lots. And uh, at first glance, you think, well, golly, uh, the... The name Purim is coming from when they cast lots to pick a date for the destruction of the Jews. It's a weird thing to call it. Um, We'll come back to that maybe here by the time the podcast is over. And then um, uh, the other thing is the book of Esther is the only book in the... Well, by the way, a couple of unique things about Esther while we're here. The only book not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Bible. The only book of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, not represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls anywhere. We did not find a copy of the book of Esther. Is that because it was perhaps written a little later and they didn't have it? Or did they intentionally yeah. omit it? Def- definitely could have been written later. There are, if you do just a basic uh, Google search or even spend some time on Wikipedia, different things like that, you'll find that there's a lot of discussion about the canonization of Esther and where scholars believe, Jewish scholars, uh, not just Christian scholars, but where Jewish thought places Esther and how it evolved in the canon of of Jewish biblical literature. So there's that. Uh, but Esther, back to maybe our more original point, uh, is the only book of the Bible to uh, not mention God. God is nowhere in the book. 
And yet God is everywhere in the book. And so if you ever uh, get a chance to see um, a Jewish community celebrating Purim, it's going to look like the Jewish version of Halloween. They're all dressed up in costumes. Um, it's, uh, it's a real huge festival. Uh, it's a huge party, um, huge celebration costume. And the reason they dress up in costumes is because it, it seems like in the book of Esther, God is there the whole time, but he's kind of in disguise. He's never mentioned but he's obviously there. So God is kind of in costume. And so that's one of the things that comes out of the book uh, as well. So yeah, Purim is this two-day celebration. Um, not everybody does two days, but it can be. You celebrate the first half of the book on the first night and the second half of the book on the second night. And it's this big two-day party and uh, and celebration. So yeah, there you go. But uh, speaking about all those things that are underneath the surface, um, we're, we're going to have to recommend this book about 50 times by the time we're done with this podcast today. But uh, it's been a while since we talked about Foreman, Rabbi Foreman, Rabbi David Foreman. Yeah, session one, where he was like our go-to guy. I, I get messages from people in session one all the time, like, um, and they're nice about it, but they're like, do you have any other sources besides Rabbi Foreman? But, and I always say, hey, we're going to get away from Rabbi Foreman. And we did. And, um, and now all of a sudden he's back um, because his study on the book of Esther was phenomenal. Um, one of the best books I've ever read. If you, if you want to read anything about Esther and dive deeper into Esther, uh, his book titled The Queen You Thought You Knew, Rabbi David Foreman. The Queen You Thought You Knew. And the subtitle really gets it. The subtitle is uh, Unmasking Esther's Hidden Story. Not unlike Foreman at all, always trying to dig out the uh, hidden story and the hidden meaning, the treasures buried in the text all the time. Unmasking as in they're typically in costume. Ooh, very. He's he's so clever with his titles. I like that. If you don't like Foreman, though, this is probably the last you'll hear of him because he's not going to have a whole lot to say about... uh, yeah, he's not going to write a whole lot about Jesus in the New Testament right. for us. So, um, yep, this, uh, but man, what a great read. I would definitely recommend getting that book. And it, it really is, there's a hidden, there, there is, as we've found with all of the Tanakh. Um, this is, by the way, the last podcast. This, we've made it. We've made it. This is the last book. Last book of Tanakh. We got a couple more podcasts in session two, um, but the last uh, book to, to study. Now, this so, book is considered a writing, of course, not yes, a prophet. Yes, absolutely. This is definitely in the Ketuvim, um, the writings section of Tanakh. So, um, uh, but yeah, there is definitely, as there is with everything in Tanakh, a hidden, there is a hidden story. There's a hidden message. There is a treasure. There is an agenda that the writer is, is bringing forward. And so... Um, I'm just going to kind of give some flyby, like I'm going to skip a stone, as I like to say, across the book of Esther, because I feel like if I really dive into what I would like to talk about, I'm just going to ruin the book. Can you give spoilers on a book? Because I feel like you can. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. And I can't do that because the book is so good. You need to get the book. You need to read it. And I don't need to spoil it. If I was smart, I would have read the book before we recorded this podcast. But Yeah. So you're not going to know if I'm spoiling it. But I'll st- I'm going to stay away from some of the really unique and cool twists and turns in Foreman's book. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a flyby of Foreman's kind of greater points and arguments as we, as we bounce through the book. But uh, with no further ado, I'm just going to kind of uh, flip through the story. Um, and the story starts with uh, King Xerxes of Persia. This is definitely remnant period because we got Persia ruling. And this book is written kind of for, so Ezra and Nehemiah, those books that we've been looking at, Haggai, Zechariah, those were books about God's people and they went back home to rebuild. 
But we made this point. We were talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. Not everybody went back home. In fact, very few people went back home. These small waves of people went back to rebuild. And over time, more and more people went back. Um, scholars estimate somewhere around a quarter of a million Jews returned in that period uh, immediately following the Babylonian captivity over a, over an extended maybe a couple centuries, uh, which isn't really a whole lot when you think about it. You know, six million, roughly six million, five, six million Jews and, and a quarter of a million moved back in that period of time. A lot of them don't move back. Some of them are trying to go back and rebuild and restore. And there was that whole idea that we had of, um, of uh, returning and yearning and learning. But uh, there's a whole big portion of Judaism that stays where they're at. They're not all in Persia, but a large section of them are. And so Esther is a book that's written for the, um, the contingency of Judaism that is staying in Persia. Uh, and and that's the story behind the story, the narrative behind it. And so we have a story not about the Jews going back home to rebuild, but we have a story about Persia and the king in Persia. And so he has this huge party because the king in Persia um, is obviously in charge of he's he's the king of the world at this point in history. So he throws this huge party, huge celebration, and as kings do, they are enjoying themselves, they are imbibing. They are uh, drinking to their heart's content, and they get this crazy idea as all, I shouldn't say as all, a a crazy idea. You could imagine a bunch of male rulers getting together to have a big drinking party. They they think, golly, King Xerxes, you should have your wife, and maybe that's not fair, Xerxes' idea, should have my wife Vashti come in and... uh, the Hebrew here is quite interesting. Present herself, dance. Um, the insinuation here is certainly she needs to come in wearing her crown. And I think most readers are going to definitely hear that uh, insinuate and nothing else. Like th- this is going to be a, a striptease, a, um, uh, uh, an exhibition of his wife. Uh, and so she refuses. Critical. Naturally, I would think. Na- yeah. Well, yes. And yet, and yet you're the, this is the king, and yet you refuse the king, which is actually what fires everybody up in the story. They're like, Xerxes, like, we can't. And they're not even mad at Xerxes. Like, they're more like, if you let your wife do this, all of our wives are going to do this too. Like, if you let your wife talk back to you until you know, all of our wives are going to talk back to us and tell us no. Imagine the horror. Um, and so he, dispo- he he deposes of her. He gets rid of her. He banishes her. Um, we're not told what exactly the means are, but she is she is no more in his uh, in his palace. She's no longer queen. And uh, as you would imagine, uh, he gets lonely. <laughs> consequences of uh, drunken, stupid decisions. Indeed, consequences. And, um, and so now he has to go find a new wife. And so they have this, um, his officials come up with this brilliant idea. We're going to have like a, we're going to have like a, a really wacky cross between like um, the bachelor and American Idol uh, we're gonna we're gonna find all of the unwed virgins of the land, and we're gonna bring them all. Uh, or they're gonna have this huge contest, and you're gonna get a pick out of all the. Now, we often kind of dress that up really nicely, um, and yet the whole when you read, especially in the original Hebrew, when you look at the context, uh, this is this isn't just like a beauty pageant. Um, this is a uh, this is this is sexual conquest. This is they're being brought into the harem to be trained in the art of lovemaking. This isn't just about dressing up and learning how to eat with a fork and um, 
having lots of perfume and this is this is learning the art because you're going to get one night with the king you're going to get one shot to impress him and the idea is everybody assumes well you're going to impress him uh, sexually and he's going to choose you because of your incredible ability and so into the story wades um, a, a hebrew girl her name is hadassah is her hebrew name but in in this name she goes by the persian name esther you can talk about the origin of that name, but that would distract us, so we won't do that. But um, Esther is this uh, Jewish girl who, because she is the niece of a guy by the name of Mordecai, who has adopted her as his um, Hebrew, that, remember that Hebrew phrase we used to use back in Genesis of daughter. She is not his biological daughter, but he has brought her into his home, redeemed her to sit at her table. He is her uh, patriarchal father. He has adopted her as his daughter, in a sense. And uh, he tells her not to reveal her Jewish identity. So she doesn't. Probably why she takes on not the name Hadassah, but she takes on this other name, Esther, Persian name, Esther. And she goes and she enters into this um, this pageant, if you will. Now, which raises all kinds of questions. Uh, I remember preaching a sermon uh, years ago on Esther. And I said, there's really two different takes on, on Esther. If you read this from like a a critical, like a textually critical viewpoint, there are a lot of indications here that make you think Esther gets into this by some pretty sketchy means. Like she enters into a, a, a sex contest and wins and is chosen to be the wife of King Xerxes. Uh, she takes on a, well, let's talk about the name. The origin of the name Esther is really the Persian version of the name Ishtar. Ishtar being what we unfortunately name Easter after. Easter is a mis pronunciation of by the Romans of Ishtar. Uh, and we go ahead and name our wonderful resurrection of resurrection celebration after that. Boggles my mind the things that we do. Um, but nevertheless, Ishtar and Esther, uh, she takes on the name Esther. If you remember our discussion, remember Brent about uh, the Baals and Phoenicia and Jezebel. Uh, Asherah is the ancient Phoenician or Amorite or Canaanite version of Ishtar. Uh, what was Ash, Ash, Ashtoreth or Asherah's? Who was she? The goddess of fertility, fertility, sexual fertility, and and her cult was always incredibly sexually immoral and involved all kinds of prostitution. If Esther takes on the name Esther, Ishtar, boy, it really makes you think. From a, if you're thinking critically here, she doesn't get into this as this. Like she engages in some pretty sketchy, which I have, a, there's always a group of people that immediately react against that idea. I used to call it story A, um, take A, uh, uh, perspective A, is that Esther gets into this with some pretty sketchy means, but then she is perfectly placed at a critical moment in history where God shows up and wants to use her. And in that moment, it's not going to matter how she got there. It's only going to matter whether or not she's willing to be used in that moment, which I think is a powerful narrative. Because when I preached on that, so many people got angry, and yet there were some people in the crowd that went, wait a minute, that's my story. Like, I've gotten to where I'm at today through some pretty sketchy stories and some pretty rough decisions and some pretty rebellious, sinful actions. I find myself where I am today. Are you telling me that God could even use me for such a time as this? And I think, man, what a refreshing perspective possibly and it makes it real it makes it human she becomes a human character is that the sermon from the story series it is 
You I'll, could even find yeah, that and link I'll, it. I'll link that in the show notes if yeah. anyone wants to go back and watch that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there is a more dominant Jewish take. That take does exist in Jewish thought, by the way. But there's another take that in the oral tradition, in the Midrash, in the rabbinical teaching, rises to the top and ends up taking the cake. And that is that Esther, in fact, does not get into this by sketchy means. She does not win the sex contest, but she enters the contest. And instead of impressing the king with her sexual exploit, she impresses the king with her uh, intellectual, her, her, her understanding of Torah. In fact, one midrash says she tells stories. She tells the king the sto- she tells the kings the, the stories of Torah, and he's so impressed by her wit and her intelligence and her artistic ability that he chooses her rather than all the girls that impress him with their sexual means. So that's the other take of this, and and there are some hints that, in fact, this is going on in the text. In fact, when we get to chapter two, we're going to find all of these unbelievable parallels to the story of Joseph all the way back in Genesis. You have, I want to read a couple of these examples here. You have, um, uh, let's see, uh, Esther two, what do you got? Eight B through 11, Brent. Mm -hmm. Esther was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background, because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, if you hear this story about Esther going to the palace, uh, the harem, and getting winning the favor of the the chief there, and then getting put almost in charge of everything, you immediately think of which biblical character, Brent? Joseph. Yeah, Joseph. It's it's a harem. It's not quite a dungeon, but it's really similar. Winning the favor. There are so many exact phrases that are lifted from the Genesis story and placed in the way it describes Esther. And then we read at the end of that little passage there how Mordecai is there every day in the courtyard, and he and he walks with her and meets her. And the, the Jewish Midrash talks about, and he tells her the stories of Torah. He's there to train her in the text. She's going to know her text because of the the faithfulness and righteousness of Mordecai, who who walks with her and teaches her. But then there's another passage a little bit later. Uh, let's see, 2.15 through, what do we have, 17? When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle uh, Avihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Teveth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And I hear again all of these echoes of the um, wise magicians and people in Egypt who couldn't interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so 
just like Esther is brought before the king, Joseph was brought before the king, and he won the king's favor. And here Esther wins the king's favor. And what did what did the king do to Joseph when he won his favor, Brent? And put him in charge of everything. Put him, you know, in a place of power. And how did he? Did he do anything? Did he give him anything? Did he? Oh yeah, gave him all the all the stuff that had been taken away from him. Exactly. Before. Remember that that whole. He gives him his robes and the crown. And what does he do to Esther? Same thing robes crown makes her queen and so there's all these parallels to joseph which would make a ton of sense if this is written to the people who didn't go back home and rebuild but the people who stayed in persia because here's joseph who's staying in egypt and so you're trying to learn from the story of joseph you're trying to learn through the story of esther what it means to persevere and to influence and to be obedient and just like joseph if you remember joseph interprets the dream about the famines and joseph has this wisdom to perceive what this situation calls for. And he then tells the king how they're going to avoid the famine, even though the dream doesn't tell Joseph this. God doesn't tell Joseph this. Joseph has the wisdom and the cunning wit and the shrewdness to know what the next steps need to be. Esther is going to mirror this exact same kind of shrewdness throughout the story. Um, But we need to start picking it up here. So uh, along we go. After that, um, we're going to read about uh, Mordecai finding out about an assassination plot, alerting the authorities, saving the king's life. We're going to be told about, uh, we're going to get introduced to the villain. His name is Haman. And uh, he's quite the guy, pretty uh, arrogant, narcissistic. Everywhere he goes, people bow down to him. And he loves to receive the honor and praise of everybody. But one person never bows down to him. Who is it, Brent? Mordecai. Mordecai. Mordecai refuses. This Jewish guy committed to uh, righteousness and just refuses to bow to the pride of a human being. And so Haman ends up hating this Jewish people led as, as he sees it, as he perceives it led by this smug Mordecai who refuses to bow the knee. So Haman comes up with this huge plot, obviously to, uh, if you're familiar with the book, um, to kill the Jews, he gets an edict from the King saying on such and such a date, uh, you, uh we're going to, uh, there is this people, Haman has convinced him that don't want to obey the king's laws. They don't love the country. Um, they're not very patriotic. They, and, and we're going to go out and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put them to death. We're going to kill the king's enemies. And, uh, and so Mordecai finds out about this plot. And, and uh, Mordecai sends word to Esther. And he says, uh, you, you, have to do, you have to do something about this. Well, the problem is, is Esther can't just go to the king. She's queen. She can't just go to the king. The king has to summon you. And she hasn't been summoned, it says. In months upon months, she has not been summoned before the king. And so she can't just go to the, she can't just knock on the door. You do that at, your, at the risk of your own life. If the king doesn't want to see you and you approach his court without being summoned, if he doesn't want to see you, it's kind of like off with her head kind of a situation. So is the, she hasn't, she hasn't been summoned in an official capacity or like they haven't seen each other at all in months. The story, uh, the story makes it seem like you feel like as you read the story, they haven't seen each other at all. Like she's not either. Either she she feels like this is a conversation that needs to happen in a more official capacity in his courts, or they haven't seen each other at all. And to me, the latter makes more sense even historically. Um, it's possible that she sees him on a husband-wife level, and there's no way she could bring this up in conversation. That's a possibility. But the story makes you feel like you she hasn't really even seen the king, um, which wouldn't also be that hard to perceive in this ancient world where uh, they're not necessarily ancient kings with all of their glory and might, don't necessarily live with wives like we do in the same house. She probably has her own quarters, her own attendants uh, in the palace. All of their needs are met 
uh, in as whatever way as they so desire, king and queen. Um, so uh, this is the predicament. And so Mordecai convinces her to do something. Uh, and and Foreman will point out in the book by alluding to a passage in the book of Numbers. He takes this brilliant passage and says the way that she's using, the way that Mordecai is using the phrasing is exactly the same usage that shows up in another passage in Numbers. And I'll let you read the explanation in that book. Um, but essentially Mordecai's thing is it, you can, you can do something or you can do nothing, but understand that doing nothing is the same as condoning the action. So yes, you can tell me, Esther, that your life is on the line and you really hate the fact that your brothers are going to, to die. The king doesn't even know about your Jewish heritage. You could be fine. You might survive. But just know that if you do nothing, it's the same as essentially saying, I agree with the king's edict. I agree with the king's order. And so she decides after some fasting and prayer, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go all in. Let, let the chips fall where they may. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw my, myself at the mercy of God and see what happens. And so she decides to go to the king, which she does. And the king receives her favorably. And you're like, great, here she is. She's standing before the king. She can just ask the king to reverse the order. But she doesn't do that. And in fact, the whole rest of the story, Foreman is going to point out how wacky and unusual it is in true Foreman fashion. He's going to start the book by raising about 50 million questions and then spend the whole book just picking off those questions one by one and systematically answering them in this brilliant way. Um, But she doesn't ask. She gets before the king and, and her request was what, Brent? Not, hey, can you change the edict? But what does she ask the king? She says, I want to make you a... I want to make you a banquet. Oh, yes. Yeah. She says, I want to, I want to make a big banquet for you, which is a weird request. Like, just ask him the question. You're sitting right there. Why are you making this so much more complicated? And Foreman will go to great lengths to say, she is so wise and so shrewd. She understands. And there's, it's really this, it's not even a battle between her and Haman, because Haman's kind of an idiot in the story. It's really a battle of, between her and the king, because she understands that the king has to save face. He can't make an edict and just reverse it. And so she has to play the table. And so the whole time I'm reading this story, Esther, since, since studying Foreman's work, I can't help but think of Jesus as a teaching, you've got to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as serpents. Um, because that's, I mean, Esther is the perfect example of somebody who is shrewd as a serpent. She understands. She can't just go in and ask him to fix the problem. She's got to deal with this in a way that, and a true Genesis fashion. Is it deception? Is it manipulation? Whatever it is, she has to be very, very wise about how she goes forward and 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 treads water here, or she's going to find herself in some real, uh, she's going to lose it all. She's going to put it all on the line and then lose the opportunity to save the people. And so instead she asks for a banquet, but then she asks for the king, not just between her and the king, but she wants Haman there too. And you're like, why does she do that? And Foreman will go and he'll explain, she is trying to to get in the king's head. Because if you're the king and she wants to have a banquet to tell you something and she's going to invite Haman, what do you suppose the king's first reaction is going to be? What is he going to assume or start wondering? He's going to get really nervous about something. What is it, Brent? Like, why, why, is, why are these two people in powerful positions, like, about to battle off? Yeah. And he's going to be, he's going to be thinking about his own throne. He's going to be thinking about an extramarital affair. He's going to be thinking about all kinds. Of, so she's like perfectly setting up this. The king's now wrestling with this. Uh, what's going on here? Why? And so he goes to bed that night. Can't sleep. 
That's why he has so many bring about. Bring me the storybooks. Tell me great stories about my kingdom. Well, what story ends up coming up? And again, here's one of these instances of God in disguise. God's never mentioned. But it just so happens, quote unquote, that the story of Mordecai saving his life comes up. And in this tongue-in-cheek fashion, uh, he calls in Haman, brilliant, humorous part of the story, and says, what would you do for the man that you want to honor? Haman thinks, of course, what, Brent? He's going to honor who? Well, then his his best guy is Haman. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's going to honor me. And so he has this brilliant idea. Give me the king's horse and the robe. Well, he's not wanting to honor Haman. He's wanting to honor this hero in this story, Mordecai. So backfires. And Haman's narcissism completely backfires on him. He has to parade Mordecai through the streets. Makes him so mad. Ends up building after talking to his wife a little bit earlier in the story. He has built these huge gallows, 70 feet tall. Gallows. Some people think of nooses, probably more likely impaling poles, probably a huge, a huge sharpened pole on which you would impale people in that day and age in Persia. Uh, but he builds these huge 70 uh, foot gallows and, and then the banquet finally arrives and, um, and, and Esther has purposely set up, set the stage to mess with the king. Um, uh, because instead of, of her having to make the case about divided loyalties, Foreman will say, uh, Esther is actually asking the king to rescue her. He, she has toyed with his emotions and his, what could it possibly be? What could it possibly be meter enough that when it gets to this moment, he, she's now asking him to be the hero, to be the stallion, to ride in and to save her. Um, and so even as she's revealing herself as a Jew, she's completely deflected it away from her heritage. Uh, she, 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 she's actually deflecting the attention not on her Jewishness, but on Haman. Haman is out to get your wife. And, and she's playing right into this stage that she's set. Um, and, uh, and, and so she takes the fear and she uses it. Uh, the king rushes out of the room, super mad. Um, comes back in, obviously. And the other thing we said he could be wrestling with is an extramarital affair. He comes back in and Haman, she is reclining on the couch. Haman is laying on her, the Hebrew says, pleading for his life. Of course, the king assumes because of all the emotion he's dealing with. Super mad. Orders that the guards seize him. The guards say, well, we just built these huge gallows out back. Another great humorous tongue-in-cheek satirical. Yeah, we're going to go hang Haman on his own gallows out back. So that's what they do. But then as you feel like the story is coming to a close, Foreman will point out everything goes awry. The king doesn't reverse the edict. You see, the king isn't this this dummy in the story, like this being tricked all the time. He knows in this moment, I've got to save face. And so he says, he doesn't reverse the edict. Instead, what he does is he gives the ring and the authority and the power to Esther and Mordecai. And so now they have to, and it's a brilliant move by the king, because the king is essentially saying, if you make me look look bad, I'm going to kill you. So whatever you do, you have to save face. So here's my authority, and whatever you decide to come up with, you've got to save face. And so the whole rest of the book, Foreman, will go on to talk about how shrewd and wise and brilliant Mordecai and Esther have to be in what they propose. And what they propose is causing all of the subjects of the kingdom to have to ask the question, what does the king really want? Does the king want the Jews dead or does the king not want the Jews dead? Because they can make an edict in the king's name. And so they kind of make the opposite edict. They don't undo the previous edict because that's going to get them killed. And so instead they said, well, the king actually says the Jews can defend themselves. And you're now going, well, wait a minute. The king says, 
we're going to go defeat the Jews. But now the king says the Jews can defend themselves. What does the king actually want? And the whole rest of the book, they play on this ensuing dialogue. And so at the end of the whole discussion, and like I said, I've gone on long enough, but you've got to read this book. It's so good. But at the end of the book, um, why, why do we call this Purim? And the word for Esther in our review will be Purim. Um, why do we call Esther Purim? Is it really referring to the lots that were cast about the death of the Jews? No. It's referring to the lots that Esther cast before the Lord when she said, I'm going to throw my lot before God. If I die, I die. If I live, I live. But it wasn't about Haman's lots. It was about Esther's lots. And the whole book becomes this teaching point of you've got to do something. To stand in the face of injustice and, and, and say nothing is the same as condoning the injustice in the first place. But to, to engage the injustice of empire, to live in Persia, and we're going to come back to this in the next podcast, to live in Persia is going to require more than just obedience. It's going to require more than just moral rightness. It's going to require a shrewd wisdom in how you engage empire in a way that forces empire to crumble in light of the goodness. Uh, to f- to force the darkness to fall apart in light of the light of your wisdom. Um, that's going to be the lesson of the book of Esther. So good. feel like I didn't even treat that well at all because the book is so much better. Get the book. Read it. It'll be awesome. You won't regret it. I should probably follow your advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Brent. Do it. Uh, I feel like I'm pretty weak on, on Esther. I feel like I don't know what I'm talking about here. So good. I'll even let you borrow the copy I'm holding in my hand right now. All right. All right. I'll come by and read it later. All right. Well, uh, let's see here. Let me let me look at the the date here. So as we record this, I think discussion groups in Moscow and Pullman will be done for the semester. Yep. Um, but there are maybe some special events, other stuff going on over the summer. Of course, we have discussion groups all around the country. So check out the website. Schedule changes are, are always there. Um, but either way, you know. This is this is about community. So you can find somebody else. You don't need a formal discussion group. Yeah, find somebody yeah. else. To listen to this. Get together. Have lunch. Talk about it. It's good stuff. Right. Read the book together. Read the book. Ooh, ooh, yeah. All right. Uh, if you have any other questions, you can uh, find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. Uh, as Marty was saying last night, all of his best stuff is on Twitter. So that's definitely the place to uh, find him. <laughs> uh, but we do have a Facebook discussion group as well, or not discussion group, but a Facebook page where you can you know ask questions or whatever. So either way, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.